Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello everybody, it's time for episode four of Bilge Pumps, I think. Um, it's episode something or other anyway. Uh, so uh, we are going to start off today with your regular host, myself, Drak, or Drak Innerfell. We also have Dr. Clark. Hello, thank you for having me. And uh, Armoured Carriers Dash Jamie. Howdy. <laughs> and a random postal delivery, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so uh, yes, yeah, so we're going to start off today by talking about Dunkirk, but not necessarily the mechanics of the evacuation, although we may may wander off into that particular subject. But we're going to look at more the reporting side of Dunkirk and how reporting of wartime occurrences can actually affect both perception and actuality of various military operations so yeah. this is because of the story of course that came that was sort of i was looking at on twitter that came out which was um michael foot frank owen and peter howard managing to write a book about dunkirk in less than four days it's called guilty men it's still available and it came out on the 5th of July, 1940. And I'm just wondering how quickly Jamie has managed to write a book in the past. <laughs> you know, it, uh, yes, those three of them, they got it done in four days. But sure, that means you could get one done in 12. Yeah. I know I take about a year, but, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm merely an academic. OK, so, look, I mean, when I've been really under the pump and I've had all of my source information at my fingertips, I can and have pushed out five to six thousand words um you know uh, in a day as a as, as a set of stories maybe two or three stories um can i you know push out a book in 12 days uh, you know my fingers wouldn't last uh, beyond day two it i think so you know um but then again at the same time though you know th there's this there's this thing called prep no journalist should go into a story without having done their background work so you know um part of the the the, the scenario is that um you should basically have all your background under your hat by the time you go and interview someone or by the time you go to to visit a scene or to uh, you know watch to, to observe a scenario you should be aware journalists are experts nothing but you know they are they know a little bit about everything that's sort of the definition of a journalist it's very much like a farmer you know a master of no trade but a a jack of all of them so mm -hmm. um yeah look it, it, yeah I can't, I can't imagine however going into a scenario like dunkirk and having done enough accurate uh, predictive backgrounding to be able to turn around a book just a couple of days later no shiny yeah it's you know it's a fun thing to have to do i i can i i'm sort of looking at these things and thinking about it in that hello hello i heard hello. Someone, I, I i think we managed to somehow skype cross wires because i suddenly heard someone talking in chinese other than that or we're now being officially being listened into by the chinese government <laughs> Either, uh, either way, okay, if they really want the first uh, first draft of Bilge Pumps 4, you know, that's up to them, <laughs> but I think it's a good a bit jumping. But leaving that to one side, um, the whole purpose, uh, 
this sort of first draft of history, the thing that's always impressed me with that book is that it has this sort of quality of that it's almost a first hand account, but that also they are bringing in a lot of other people about it. There's <laughs> my daughter this time. Yeah. Hey, Eva. Oh. <laughs> it's, Sorry, you know, it's fun. And it's, it's sort of. So we're having the fun, a full fun of organ of of doing a build trance. This is being recorded on a Friday, unlike our normal Tuesday. So you know, there there is full fun being going on this week. It just, I can't understand. You know, the impact they have, I can see, but also this part which is in there going, why do they go for? Why did they decide it was going to be a book rather than a series of articles? You know, they're journalists. Normally, you, when you think of journalists, especially you, th you think of the print journalists and you think of the, especially these days, of the rapid form. I can't imagine a modern journalist, and Jamie, correct me if I'm wrong, being able to turn around to their editor and going, instead of writing a series of articles for your online, I'm going to write a I'm going to collaborate with a couple of my pals and we're going to churn out in four days something which you could never publish because it's going to be about 80,000 words long. Yeah, it it, it doesn't sound normal. That's all I can say. The, the, the whole scenario does not uh, ring true in many, to me in many ways. I, I'm not aware of the book. I'm not aware of its history. I'm not aware of the, those um, uh, writers. I'm Australian, so I'm not immersed in uh, the, the UK culture there. But um, I can say that more than a few journalists will write books. They, you know, a, a journalist who's assigned to a particular uh, gruesome murder case will almost always produce one or two books. A political journalist will always produce one or two books because they've had the inside line on major developments in national policy and history and uh, and the scandals from from where to go and more often than not had a lot of behind the scene context that they haven't been able to for whatever reason put into to a variety of scattered stories. Um, but as you say there, um, Again, I would imagine that these journalists would have gone over to Europe fully aware that this was a major turning point in history, a major mm -hmm. event. That yes, they would have discussed beforehand that okay, the the um, adventures of the British Expeditionary Force would have been worth a book. They would have done their prep on that British Expeditionary Force. They would have done their prep on the uh, French uh, forces and strategies and tactics. They would have done their prep from what they knew of the Germans. And they would have massed a, a a corpus of background material ready to rearrange, plug and play into into certain positions, and write the context around those around that background in time for a rapid publish. Um, that yeah, that's that's the only way that I can see it working. And it's you know it, it, I have seen it work that way in the past, but I haven't seen it work in terms of. Um, you know, a matter of days after a, a rather sudden uh, significant event such as Dunkirk. Hmm. Well, the interesting thing about the three, to just give you a bit of background, and sort of uh, wanted to uh, break it up myself. Uh, Michael Foote goes on in 1940s, he's writing for the Evening Standard and he goes on to become leader of the Labour Party in opposition. Um, Frank Owen goes on to become, is uh, working for the Evening Standard and the Daily Mail and go, works, uh, goes on to become working for, uh, becoming a Liberal Member of Parliament, a member of the Liberal Democrats, um, as we just know. And Peter Howard is, well, I, I hate to say just a 
journalist, but he is he's the one who sticks to a pure journalistic career and writing career. So um, in comparison to the other. So it's quite an interesting group to have their commentary. And they all three of them were virulently anti Nazi Germany and anti appeasement. So, yes, but that is that, it is that a probably book. would have qualified them to go there in the first place. I mean, let's say yeah. so, given the politics of the time. Um, it, 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 who, would, who would you send to cover, uh, you know, the opening stages of a, well, not even the opening stages by now, the well and truly into the uh, phony war, which suddenly went hot. Um, and given the politics that led up to this point, um, you know, again, it's the, the newspapers, proprietors were playing a role in the whole uh, appeasement, uh, non-appeasement debate, uh, playing quite a significant one of that. Um, you know, they were, um, you, know, you, you know, they'd in many ways stake their own um, pitch, uh, flag to Churchill. Um, some of them, a few of them were against, but you know, a lot of them went with Churchill. Uh, you know, it's particularly the letters to the editor were all very, at that stage, very, um, you know, uh, supportive of Churchill's approach. Um, the, the biggest problem was within Parliament itself, the, the various uh, players, the balance was much tighter, I think, in Parliament than it was in the public, as was mm. demonstrated in the following months. So, you know, this is very much Churchill's you know, critical point, wasn't it? This is where he delivered or died in many ways. It's, this is where he either pulled the government together behind him or had more of the same fractured, bickering, backstabbing uh, and and so on. Um, and his second um, crisis point, I suppose, was you know, Operation C, the uh, the raid on Salon. Again, he his reputation stood or fell with Salon. So, given the the, the broad political context there, it I, I can certainly see that um, there would have been some sort of uh, you know background move to to get sympathetic ears and eyes in the best positions. And he was really, really annoyed about the loss of Singapore. I think seriously, he uh, I would have hated to have been with him in this, any in any cabinet or staff meetings after the loss of Singapore. I have a feeling he was in full invective. Definitely full invective. I, I also have a feeling that our third member is currently sitting there thinking of something and has something to say. Because <laughs> he's doing that sort of grinning thing he does when he's got something's occurred to him. And he isn't going to, he's just waiting for the moment to deploy it. So just deploy it, Drac. I know it's coming. Uh, well, yes, it's, uh, I, I'm thinking when it comes to journalistic articles like this and, and well, book in that particular case and how it influences the ongoing, well, the perception and the actuality of campaigns. I just think it's it's very interesting to look at the different ways that that's happened through history. So as you say, like the Dunkirk journalistic effort, the books, it's... I hate to use the word mythologising because I think that's taken on a bit of a negative connotation more recently, but the, the, so you get the idea that the story of Dunkirk, the narrative of Dunkirk is shaped very early in the large part by journalistic efforts. I mean, obviously there is the, the facts that happened. There is the, the political speeches that are made, but getting it into the hearts and minds of the British population and then spreading that somewhat across the world is uh, at its core 
um, quite heavily founded within the journalistic efforts as well. And that does make a difference. You have the whole the Dunkirk spirit, etc., that gets referenced later on in the war, because there's there are so many ways you could cast that story. I mean, even Churchill points out in Parliament, it's not a victory, it's a defeat, but it's a defeat that we pulled the, basically sort of pulled our iron out of the fire in. And you think about how that might otherwise be portrayed today. There are so many different ways that that could have gone and how that could have influenced the public's perception of the ongoing conflict. And I think it, it does bring up the interesting, the interesting point of journalistic responsibility at which sort of what where do you draw the line between these are the facts of the matter of what happened and this is how I want to shape the story and present that to the public and then how much do you especially in a wartime environment how much does someone allow their personal bias with one way or the other on a matter to influence that because you could have somebody who's very, very critical of the political party who's in charge and might use a Dunkirk-like situation to absolutely eviscerate them at a point when the nation is actually at quite a low point. Or you could have somebody who decides, well, actually, we need to look for the positives in this situation because that's what, as a nation, we need at the moment, regardless of political alignment. And that's what I find interesting about that book, because if you consider Michael Foote goes on to lead the Labour Party. Um, Peter, uh, Peter's a Liberal Democrat. That neither of them are exactly going to be fans of Winston Churchill, maybe personally, but definitely not politically. And yet, this book basically in, uh, cements Winston Churchill and also to an extent the little ships of Dunkirk mm. over the destroyers um, as <laughs> personal gripe uh, as this sort of part of the mythology. You know, and the machine gun Churchill is born. Look, I mean, it's 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 it's, ne it's never simple. Um, mm. I mean, this, one point that just sort of popped to mind as you were just just, just uh, talking then, and Drac was that Churchill has, of course, done this before. He's been in this scenario before. Yeah, you know, he was uh, watching over a similar disaster and evacuation at Gallipoli. Um, he had to contend with the media response to that, and particularly in Australia, the media response to that was very critical. And it was led by the founder of the Murdoch Empire. Um, so it was, you know, he was not, uh, he would have come out of, I, I imagine, Gallipoli, realising that, okay, we need to find a way to, to spin that. And he had se he'd seen how, I suppose, very quickly Australia um, turned Gallipoli into, you know, snatching a victory out of the jaws of defeat, not meaning that they were victorious, but they succeeded in um, escaping uh, with minimum loss. And, you know, they, they'd hung on in this ridiculous uh, situation for far longer than um, anticipated. But um, so, so by the time you get to Dunkirk, the template's already there to follow, Polit the political template at least. It's been... You know, it, it's been written into history already. It's already been turned into mythology. So, um, you know, from a, a raw political sense, um, you know, that's that's advantageous. Would would Church did Churchill do it? I don't know. I, uh, look, I think he would have had more than uh, more than uh, plenty of other things on his mind at the time. Would his supporters have done it? Well, absolutely. 
Um, and look, politicians and report journalists and politicians. Well, I mean, just look at the current leader of the United Kingdom. He's a former columnist, is he not? So there's a you know there's a distinct link there, just as there is between between politics and lawyers and politics and real estate agents. Um, there, there seems to be these uh, three common streams, <laughs> uh, and politics and uh, and union leadership. So four common streams. That, are, yeah. that get into it now. It's it's not always a healthy relationship between them all. Um, the second point is, what value do you do you get from a journalist who's actually there on the ground? Well, I, I would say to you that I, maybe I don't come out of it from a fair enough perspective because I come out of it from a, a an amateur historian's perspective as well. But um, I wouldn't trust a journalist on the scenes. Um, reporting significantly more than I would any um, account from anybody else. Um, you know, whether it's a, a recorded, whether it's a written biography or a recorded uh, account, um, these, these people always saw it from what the perspective of one pair of eyes. So they don't know the, what the context of the situation was behind around them. They might know that their hangar suddenly exploded and shrapnel flew through and killed their mates around them. But they wouldn't have known that it was a 2,200 kilogram, uh, 2,200 pound bomb that pierced the armor. They would go with the, the assumption because it's the one term that they've been using before that, which was 1,000 pound bombs. So when they go to discuss history with a historian at some point in the future, they will say HMS Illustrious was hit by a 1,000 pound bomb. Um, so it's it, it, you, you, it, when you look at the first draft of history, you've always got to remember that we, each draft is just a component of it, and that applies to journalists as well. Um, even the the um, uh, you know the anonymous report of sweepers manual brooms about the kamikaze attacks on um, uh, the HMS Defatigable in Osaka Shimizu. Now, I have no doubt that quote was made because there was a contingent of media aboard the ship at that time and the reports of that quote were made in Australian and US newspapers and it was also reported as having been heard by people there but we still don't know who said it and probably just as well on behalf of the United States Navy's um, liaison officer um, for the sake of his future career. Uh probably would have been a bosun uh, would have been let's be honest if you're talking about someone saying sweepers manual brooms you're talking probably about a chief petty officer so a bosun or someone like that maybe a killick um it's probably not an offer you know the whole sort of historical thing would be oh it must have been the captain or something like that no it was probably a senior nco telling the deck party to get on with their job literally um, it would have just been something he'd have been saying, probably as just a normal thing, just to clear like fod off the uh, fod off the deck because mm -hmm. that's what you have to do. And it was just, but because it was heard and they were looking at the situation, they're going compare this to the American house. They've got massive damage control here. The guys just had to just say sweepers manual brooms, and it suddenly it becomes from goes from being just a normal everyday order someone's given to being this and immortal. It's picked statement. up and it's magnified. Yeah, it's picked mm -hmm. up and it's magnified. Now, so that, I mean that is both the value and the um, detriment of media, I suppose, is that you know naturally they're only going to hear that one or two phrases 
naturally they're going to focus on the one or two phrases that are uh, you know very um, easy on the ear, um, but they don't necessarily paint the, the accurate picture. But they do accurately paint the mood. They do accurately paint these the experiences of individuals, but they don't accurately paint the scenario. So you know, and I very much notice this with my our websites, uh, my YouTube channels, um, videos where I'm using accounts from veterans, audio accounts from veterans. Um, hardly any of them ever get the story right, but they all get their component of it right because it fits the overall context that I'm aware of perfectly. But as soon as they start going beyond their own experience, it can go wildly astray. Um, so many of them call, say the decks are four and a half inches thick. Well, no, it's not the decks, it's the armor belt that was four and a half inches, but it's just a combination of time and the fact that these guys weren't, um, you know, the, the thickness of armor wasn't central to their job as a mechanic or as a um, 20 millimeter um, looking gunner. So, yeah, and it, I, yeah, I, th yeah. I think this is one of the things that people have to appreciate, especially when it comes to naval matters, is that if you're interviewing a pilot of a fighter, He's the only one there, so he's a one. He's in a one-man fighter, so the account of what happened to him and his plane and what he did is going to be basically from him. And even if you're in a bomber, you're still talking about a dozen men maximum, and they're still within twenty feet of each other. The only one if, who's going to have a different view is going to be the guy in the rear turret. Yeah, and the uh, and and when you look at something even like a tank, again, everyone's within six to eight feet of each other, and about the only thing you're going to have is maybe some people got a slightly better view of what's going on outside. Whereas if you're on a ship, no one has any full idea of what's going on. Even the captain or the admiral on the bridge who's giving all the orders and can see what is happening generally around them, they're not simultaneously in the radar room seeing all the contacts coming in. They're not in the gun turrets seeing what exactly has caused the jam in number two gun B turret. They're not in the hangars seeing what's happened when something's caught fire or something's fallen off an elevator and they're not down in the bowels of the ship trying to keep the turbines running when some of the lubricant greases run out or or there's water pouring in from shock damage and so especially when it comes to naval matters you always have to take into account the broader context of what are all the people aboard go it saying plus obviously what what is known about the hard technical capabilities of the ship because that an engineer and someone who's in the radio communications office might as well be on two separate planets as far as what they're going to perceive of the battle is going to be. And the same applies to a ground fight like Dunkirk or even an evacuation scenario like Dunkirk. A guy with their boots wet in the sands of, of um, the beach is going to have a completely different experience to the guy on the, um, on the pier. He's going to have a completely different experience to the guy holding the uh, trying to hold the line behind them in the in the barricades so none of them are aware of what's happening to the others it's only it's only the after action reports isn't it it's mm. the only the damage reports that yeah. where everyone who is responsible for their section gets cross examined uh, everything gets written up and um, checked out in in forensic detail that you can come up with a scenario that says well this is what appears to have happened and this is this to the best of our ability is the actual order of events as opposed to the order of events that person a became aware of those events yeah not that and that's equally important however 
you know, the, 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 the way that people become aware of what's happening around them is shapes what happens, doesn't it? Mm. And that happens on a political scale, it happens on a tactical style scale, um, and it happens on a reporting scale. So, you know, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's just, you know, a mess. <laughs> Dun Dunkirk's a perfect example of that, actually, because if you look at all the various um, accounts from the infantry and the people being taken off the beaches, etc., one of the recurring themes from that narrative is where's the Royal Air Force? Because they don't see the Royal Air Force above the beaches. But if you then go and look at the Royal Air Force accounts, well, it actually turns out the Royal Air Force is 30, 50 miles inland, breaking up the Luftwaffe attack columns before <coughs> before they get to the beach, which is why the Luftwaffe attacks are a bit scattered. So if you look at purely the RAF um, reports, you think, oh, yeah, they're doing a great job. They're they're breaking up all the all the incoming aircraft. So it's making the evacuation a lot easier. Whereas if you ask the people who are on the beach who can't see any of that, all they're seeing is the odd Stuka or ME109 showing up and apparently going after them with near enough impunity. And this course is fun. I, I do remember at one point there is um, one account where a guy has said, or oh, the, the Navy didn't even bring an aircraft carrier and that would have made up for the RF. And it's sort of going... Really, you want to bring an aircraft carrier in and sit it off the beach of Dunkirk? But it's for similar reasons you don't bring an aircraft carrier into D-Day. It's just it, 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 the land aircraft are doing their well, job. What, 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 what They're doing as well as they can. Well, why can't they go in and provide some gunfire support? Well, uh, let's be honest, HMS Illustrious probably would have. No, that, that was uh, well, Unicorn. Yes. <laughs> unicorn would have, definitely. Um, let's be honest, if you, any of the armoured carriers, if you'd given them half a chance and told them, they'd have gone and provided gunfire support quite happily, but I don't think mm. I'd have had them in their operating aircraft. No, I mean, but, but yeah, the point is, is that, you know, it's, it's the same reason they didn't have capital ships in there. You know, big ships mm. can't manoeuvre in closed waters. Um, right. And, you know, the English Channel is a choke point. It is. Which actually, interesting enough, probably brings us to our next topic of the conversation, which is choke points, because they are things which keep coming up. People are both writing papers saying there are no such thing as a choke point anymore. I'm not quite sure if they've seen geography or a map of the earth or anything, but um, all but the choke points are now vital and we now need to work out how we're going to defend slash secure them, which by the way, was probably the entire reason for the British Empire. That was the mm -hmm. Royal Navy's attempt to defend and secure them. But, you know, what do you guys think? Oh, look, you know, Australia, um, we've got a whole lot of them. Um, it, it, we look like we're in the wide open uh, southern yonder down here. But uh, we've actually got choke points in just about every direction, important direction we, um, we have. So um, when it comes to dealing with um, Southeast Asia, we've got um, what the, the Malacca Strait, which is the, is the most obvious one. Uh, we've got the um, Sunda Strait, which you've all heard about, Perth and Houston. Um, and there's a couple of other little ones scattered around up there whose name uh, escaped me at the moment. I wish I had kept my map open. But um, basically, the entire South China Sea and East China Sea is, is uh, accessed only by a handful, maybe a little bit more, of very narrow, very shallow, very clearly defined choke points. Um, so Australia, we're, we're, here we are with uh, zero onshore oil reserves. 
and um, a political uh, class that is constantly telling us, oh, we've got plenty of oil reserves. They just happen to be on ships at sea at the moment, all of which need to get through the Micah Straits to get to us. So, you know, these, these choke points from my perspective are, well, it, it's a hell of a lot cheaper to block a choke point than it is to dominate an entire ocean. Yep, and a lot easier. Possibly that's what um, his drag ship Thunderchild will be used for. <laughs> yeah, it would make a Sorry. very good, very good effort. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, this is the thing. Um, historically, as you say, the, the, the Royal Navy, if you look at the places that they grab hold of and refuse absolutely to let go of once they've ever got, got them, it's all the choke points. It's Gibraltar, Egypt, later Suez, South Africa, uh, Cape Colony, as it was at the time. Um, fair enough, no one goes after the Straits of Magellan, but that's because nobody sane ever wants to live at the tip of South America. <laughs> well, we do have the Falkland Islands. Exactly. They go for the next. They're, 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 when it becomes important, they go for the next nearest thing. And um, once the Panama Canal opens, there, there's there's the um, there's an increase in strength in the West Indies or Bermuda station. So the, the and I suppose these days it's equally, if not more important, because the tactical flexibility that these choke points give you is huge. Um, I mean, if you if you're looking at it from the perspective of the the US, either the US or the UK, if you want to deploy ships to the Pacific and your US East Coast or UK generally, you can go all the way around South America or all the way around Africa, but ships haven't got markedly faster in their cruising speed since uh, the beginning of the 20th century. So you're still going to be talking about adding a month or so to your deployment. And a lot can happen in a month. But it means you've got to you've got to keep an eye on things because you've got Panama on one side and then Gibraltar and Suez on the other. And if something happens to those, you're in a lot of trouble. It doesn't take more than a few mines to block something like the Gibraltar Straits, and with the best will in the world, um, yes, lock gates are big and nasty and they will take a lot of damage, but there's a lot of long-range cruise missiles these days that could probably damage or destroy them, and neither Suez nor Panama it really has massive anti-missile surface defences. So just a quick question here. What, what do you guys think to the world's procurement officers have against mines. I mean, <laughs> look, at, look at what they did in World War One. look at what they did in World War Two, and think how much easier it is and how much cheaper it is to make a smart mine now. So, okay, you can sweep them, but you're still going to block an area for weeks, days, and especially if you combine it with some form of, you know, interdiction from you know, raiding vessels or raiding aircraft or raiding drones or or um, you know, roving missiles, uh, you, could, you could easily, I would imagine, completely seal off a section of the world, such as the South China Sea, by mining half a dozen choke points. I, th I think that a lot of the a lot of it is to do with mines, the classic 
spiky mine <laughs> or tic tac shaped mine of uh, World War One and Two are very indiscriminate weapons, and they have an annoying habit of wandering off. Um, and whilst that may be acceptable in the, that period, I don't think particularly that anyone would look up with any, any kindness on people who start randomly choking off major shipping lanes with something that will just blow you up if you happen to be in the wrong area. Now, obviously, there are more modern, say, smart mines like the Capital system, which, to be honest, is less of a mine. It's more of a Mark 48 ad cap in a box. <laughs> but they cost a lot of money. And as we've said before, the sea is a very cruel mistress. The If you deploy these kinds of things and they cost that much... It's almost they, a case they, of, you, you better use to, them. They don't have to be the end cap, do they? they no, they don't. But but any kind it, of smart it, it, smart system is going to be quite expensive, at which point you run two, it, two risks. It? One of which is if someone's sweeping them, you can they can sweep and get a bunch of advanced tech off of you that you might not necessarily want them to have. But two, if you're going to put $100 million of mines out there, some bean counter somewhere in the background is probably going to say at the end of the crisis, well, if you if you haven't actually used them to blow anything up, we kind of would like them back. And smart I, I technology just, and deep sea conditions don't really mix for long term <laughs> deployment. I, I, I get that. I, I, but I, I do think that the technology price equation has moved to the point now where my smartphone can do an awfully good job of voice recognition. Um, so it wouldn't involve anything more than off-the-shelf components to to make a cheap semi-smart mine mm. that can recognize the sound of particular ships or types of ships or particular types of activity just as just as an example off the top of my head um it's a similar thing with imaging okay so if it's a shallow mine um the imaging technology nowadays is so cheap so off the shelf that it can look up and check the bottom of the of a ship to you know, to and, and do a quote unquote facial recognition of the whole shape. You know, I, I, I'm again, I'm shooting off the top of my yeah. head here. I'm saying but that it, it, just like drones, just like we have a, a spectrum of um, you know commercial payload carrying drones, and you've got the big billion dollar uh, mm. global hawks. It doesn't have to be the billion dollar. It can be the next step up from the commercial, or it can be it's and the disruptive effect. It's massive because you've got to send something in there to sweep those ships, but it's a choke point. So you know where you can be targeting your cruise missiles. You know where you can be targeting your own loitering drones. You know where you can be targeting your stealth fighters or stealth bombers. You All of a sudden, that massive equation of needing to know where your enemy is, is removed because you know where they're going to be going, just the same as the, the whole convoy concept. You know, you, 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 the reason why you have warships with a convoy is because you know the enemy's going to come to you. The reason why you block and hold a choke point is you know your enemy's going to come to you. I agree, but I think the trouble is with mines, especially because of the wraparound of anti-personnel mines and things that have happened on land, sort of sea mines have sort of picked up on that sort of same issue. And it's a case of, uh, ooh, I think we there's a lot of technology there. My suspicion is rather like with fast attack craft, a lot of the technology is there and it could rapidly be turned into something, but they don't want to turn it into something in peacetime 
because A, that would give your enemy something as a benchmark to work out how to fight against, and B, then that would be a lot of money, whereas it's far easier to just let it keep going. For example, one of the interesting things I sit down and I look at is all the papers that we now write looking into IEDs and all the technologies which people have gone to develop IEDs. Now, I'm sure most of the organizations which do like to deploy IEDs to try and kill Western troops do not realize that those same IEDs and the technologies and ideas they're using and developing are probably going to feature in the next generation of Western mines should the Western nations ever need to produce mines because they've actually had someone trying to work out, they've been trying to work out the counters, they've seen what good ideas have worked by the stuff that's been used against them. Now, that's not a particularly nice thing to think about, but it is the case, you know, you've got this viable, you've got this experience of these mines being used. So in the meantime, however, we've got countries such as Australia um, mothballing, as I understand it, it's uh, uh, mine hunting fleet. Mm. And yet here we are, it, um, dependent on ships passing through narrow choke points to supply us with our, not only with our day-to-day -day supply of fuel, but also apparently our um, emergency reserve. So, you know, is it a case of, oh yeah, it doesn't matter, we just rely on somebody else coming forward and uh, sweeping the mines for us? So, I don't know, does the UK have the ability to come out here and save Australia? Well, we've got some mine countermeasure vessels poking around somewhere. Um, I have a feeling, to be honest, with the, with the sort of the mid-scale mines that you're talking about, they're, they're obviously, as Dr. Clark pointed out, there's a lot of politics around them. But I think also the, the other two factors is, one, there's perfect is very much the enemy of good enough. There hasn't been a major conflict for a long time. There hasn't been a, ma a proper major conflict where both sides run a decent ri uh, risk of losing ships longer than at least two of us have even been alive. Um, and so in times of peace, you consistently see navies and politicians focusing more and more on the perfect weapon system, which these days means the really high tech, um, things like the Capitol mine. But at the same time, as, as was mentioned, you can throw things together remarkably quickly. I mean, if you look at the Falklands, which was pretty much the last time there was any kind of serious threat of loss on both sides. You've got things like, say, the Vulcan has no ability to do long range satellite communications. Two buckets of Araldite and a antenna they snappled off of someone who was very confused the next morning. And <laughs> the tail cone has now has a per very, very permanent fixed satellite antenna. Um, and the same thing with the Harriers. It's like the, the Harriers go into the, the war without any form of jamming pod because the only jamming pod is on the tornado. But give a couple of RAF technicians a few weeks with uh, some hammers and wrenches and a bit of sheet metal. And magically, you've now got a pod that can fit on a Sea Harriers pylon. Yes. So I, I think yeah, um, when, when you've got those. Yeah. The, the other classic example I like to give is airborne early warning radar, because let's be honest. What did they do? They went and tracked down some old radars they had from the previous generation of aircraft and worked out how to fit them onto the Sea King. Yes, they didn't arrive quite in time, but it was literally a case of, we've got these old aircraft in storage which still have this radar fitted. This is the largest helicopter we have down there. Slam them together. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think yeah. If, if there's a serious conflict where choke points need to be blocked, I think we're going to see some very, very interesting crash developments of in various technology but i also think 
it's going to sound a bit weird, but I think we might actually be seeing a throwback way, way back to actually the late 19th century in terms of how mines are used because of this desire for precision and selective targeting. Um, because obviously World War I, World War II, it's all very much stick the thing over the side, hope we remember where it is and none of the rest of our ships run into one. But in the early part of World War I, places like the Dardanelles, which is another choke point, um, and a lot of defences in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, minefields were remotely operated. Uh, fair enough, a lot of that was because they didn't have a decent sort of Hertz horn type contact detonator, but it did make them a lot more discriminatory, even as far back as the American mm -hmm. Civil War. And I have a feeling that these days you might end up seeing a semi-smart minefield, I would probably call it, that data links between themselves to form a, a network, which then feeds back to some kind of command vessel, because we know how sneaky modern submarines can be. So for something like, a, let's say, let's say you're, I don't know, Russia, and you want to block the Straits of Gibraltar, but you want to block it to certain shipping, because you don't want the entire planet to come down on you when you blow up everybody's sh <laughs> ships going in and out of the Mediterranean. So you you could deploy this kind of semi-smart minefield, but where you have a human in the loop, because you then have uh, something like maybe their Lasharic uh, deep dive submarine, have that sitting 20, 30 miles away from the straits on the bottom, being really quiet and sneaky, but receiving low-level data communication from the minefield. And then it selects the final yes-no on whether that mine engages a target. So Australia's best option here is to snaffle a few Virginia-class attack boats um, out of the fragmented United States. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's certainly becoming an option. It certainly is becoming an option. We, it, this is our, our our third topic, and I think I'm going to let Drac introduce this because, frankly, he's the one. It, it, it's the, he, it's his idea. It's his baby. <laughs> yeah. So the the idea is well, historically there's been quite a number of times that various fleets have been divvied up between other people um occasionally willingly quite often unwillingly but um so yeah they obviously got the, the the dutch and danish fleets and parts of the royal navy being divvied up to the dutch and the french kindly acting as the royal navy's volunteer naval reserve for much of the napoleonic wars um it was so, so useful yeah you know, it was so helpful really helps iron out the issues with production of our own ships <laughs> um and and obviously going forward into the 20th century in in the uh at the end of world war one we have the the high seas fleet scuttling itself rather than be handed over um the austro-hungarians pull a very clever but ultimately futile political maneuver of trying to hand over their entire navy to newly formed what will later be yugoslavia to try and keep it out of people's hands and so on and so forth. So I guess that brings up the the present day of if, if something should happen to the US, like it being hit by two or three of the horsemen of the apocalypse in the few months, um, should, which is, I mean, we're, what, we're, we're, we've got the pestilence and the plague and the conflict. What do we need? We need the... Um, we, we need death or, or, I don't know, whatever the, the white one is. But anyway... <laughs> 
land invasion from China using teleporting <laughs> marines or something. But um, yes, it, it does bring up the issue of should something happen to the United States as a continuous entity, what happens to the US Navy? Didn't Churchill come up with an answer for that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's a, it, it's an interesting one. As uh, as you know, Jamie has said, you know, the uh, Australians would quite like some Virginia class. I, I'm I'm fairly sure the Canadians would quite like some Virginias as well. Um, Britain would probably take a few. Would probably be quite happy to accommodate yeah. a few Virginias. You, you, you can have all the home. LCS. You can have all the LCS. No, no, I feel the LCS is a far better fit for the Australian Navy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, I mean, it is interesting to, as a, as, as, a, as a hypothetical, because, I mean, obviously it's going to depend a lot on what the political situation in the United States would be if it has it split into multiple, multiple but still large political entities. I mean, yeah. California could probably maintain a decent-sized Navy all on its own. Um but they're they're obviously going to try and retain as much as possible. But there may also be obviously with that kind of severe level of political disagreement, there may well be instances where U.S. Navy units, yeah, U.S. Navy units feel they can't actually support any of them. Um, yeah. I mean, referencing back history again, the worst case scenario had somehow Operation Sea Lion succeeded. The plan for the Royal Navy was to fall back to Canada. But also with the, the detailed plans obviously involved a lot of cooperation with the US in order to sort of wait out until the UK could be retaken in some manner. But it, it, it is interesting because then you think, well, you've got things like the nuclear carriers. They have huge manpower requirements. They have very specific technological and skill level requirements. And no one else actually has the full scale infrastructure to support them long term. I mean, okay, some of the bigger, more advanced countries could probably keep them running until they need refueling, but no one else has mass scale nuclear refueling capabilities. I mean, probably the closest you'd get to that would be something like the UK because we do refuel our own subs. But there and is a difference. And we do have Sellafield. Yes, we do have Sellafield, so that gives us an advantage on that one. But but just okay, just jumping back to history here. Um, how India did India might try go? for it? How did nations go supporting uh, the, the vestiges of a, uh, a fractured fleet? How did countries go with the remnants of the Italian fleet after World War II, for mm -hmm. example? How did uh, countries continue to operate? Because you're not just losing, you're not just, it's not just about the ship, it's about the entire uh, industrial base, it's about the mm -hmm. entire logistics network. Um, you, you don't build a ship, you've got to build a system. And yeah. you're only taking a ship out of that system. So, you know, I, um, yeah, I guess once again, that's what I'm saying. Do you guys know much about how things worked after the German high seas fleet with a few ships to survive this, the scuttling? Uh, how did they go? Did, did they just end up getting um, expended on, at a Bikini Atoll? Well, a lot of the technology, I think a lot of it comes down to technological difference, because if you're looking at the age of sail, people know how to sail an age of sail ship. There's not a part about the most inconvenient part of taking over a French or Spanish ship of the line is they use slightly different calibers on their cannon and but casting up cannonballs and wadding them up is not groundbreaking or or backbreaking infrastructure whereas by the time you get to the 20th century they're using different 
different boilers, different turbines, which have different parts, that run at different pressures, operate in different ways. Um, I mean, looking at the comparison of, uh, I think it's Barden that they use in trials after the war in World War One. They there's a massive Admiralty document that compares Barden with the Queen Elizabeths, and on paper you look at them, you think, oh, okay, mid twenties knots, eight fifteen inch guns, four twin turrets, roughly similar armor thickness. They're about as close to on paper twins as you could probably think of from two different countries. But then you look at the massive amount of differences the Admiralty pulls up between the two, and you realise, well, actually, the chances of some of the Royal Navy adopting Barden and Bayonne into their overall fleet that's full of Queen Elizabeth and Revengers are pretty much nil. Um, I, th I think where where you do get in world post World War One and World War Two people operating um, ships that have been handed over, it's mostly in World War One, it's mostly France and well, post World War Two, it's mostly the Soviet Union. Is where either that navy flat out doesn't have ships of that kind of level of modernity and and type and so it, there's no real infrastructure impact per se because well it's a new it's a new class there you'd have to facilitate that anyway or where that type of vessel can comprise a significant percentage of their fleet because if you've got now, the thing is, if you're the post-World War I French Navy, if you can adopt half a dozen German light cruisers or light armoured cruisers, I guess, into your fleet, you've practically doubled your modern light armoured cruiser fleet, at which point it makes sense to try and keep them supplied and repaired because it's two, yeah, it's two lines of infrastructure supply, but you probably would have ended up with that anyway if you'd built a successor class to your existing ones. Whereas if you're talking about the Royal Navy, where they've got towns and C-class stacking up in all sorts of corners, and it's like, well, yeah, we found another C-class hiding down the back of the sofa yesterday. <laughs> do you do you need the hassle of a, a mere half dozen extra ships, which are going to require a completely different support line? So, and I mean, yeah, it was you, um, compatibility, I suppose, Dr. Clark. Hmm. You were looking at um, um, the shipyard working. Um, for you know, British ships being repaired yeah. in one of your recent mm. podcasts, you know, mm. uh, I imagine things there would that would be different. We would be everything from electrical systems through to which way your screw and bolt are threaded. Oh, it was very very fun, and it ended up with the basically the DNC of the UK setting up almost a satellite office in the United States to try the director of naval construction. Uh, the Royal Navy had their own, well, still do have their own naval architects who look after the construction of their ships and make sure they're constructed to their standards. And they basically had to set up a satellite. They had originally planned to run it with the um, U.S. Navy's Bureau of Ships, but they ended up needing to send their own people out there because the systems are just so difficult. You need their own people and you need to explain it. And actually, it ends up being a very good relationship between them and the bureau of ships but it is quite complicated to do and this is two allies trying to work together and i think what's interesting though is this discussion is we immediately gone on to the higher end ships of the you know the carriers the nuclear submarines but the things i think would be more interesting to talk about in terms of division would be the Arley burks yeah because for many navies that is in within the reach of their ability to support that and that would be an incredible technological jump for them to do 
I think I'd you rather know, run off with the minesweepers, <clears throat> to be honest. Well, <laughs> well, they don't have any, do they? Well, yeah, maybe, say, uh, yeah, maybe. it's a couple. They, I think I think they're keeping a few on retainer because of the uh, the lack of forward progress on the mine mine countermeasures modules for the LCS. But I I wouldn't necessarily want to go very far off of shore in one, to be perfectly frank. No. I, I think I'll stick to the raw navies ones that I, I quite like. The um, so, the hunt class will do me quite happily. Mm, thank you very much. I, I guess so where does the whole modern um, push for commonality put us then? Um, you know, the the idea is that uh, most of the Western navies are supposed to be as interoperable as possible. Is 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 that something that would you know play into a scenario that you know, let's say let, let's say to get away from upsetting our um, US listeners. You know, it, all of a sudden, um, Germany falls, and we get a bunch of German uh, ships uh, floating around the oceans. Or all of a sudden, France decides that it's uh, um, sending itself back into the um, into the um, you know the the pre-industrial era. Era. Um, what do we do with the new free French? Um, Viva la Révolution! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I see. There is a difference between interoperability, uh, interoperability, and inter infrastructure. You can have the ability to operate together, but still not be able to actually support each other in terms of the infrastructure. Because the components, yes, they could be to an extent interchangeable. Fuel lines can be done so you can still refuel each other at sea and all this sort of stuff and fuel types. But that is very, very basic stuff. In a, don't in a the same few companies make the weapon systems? Don't the same few companies make the radar systems? Don't the same few companies make the communication systems? There is a bit of a divide there because. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is you could even look at the US and say, oh, Yellowstone erupts. <laughs> that, that, that's a very non-political way of... Hey, it, it sounds like something that's going to happen in 1920. It does sound like something that could happen in 2020, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's going to depend Stop on... Stop fate. Such what yeah. it won't. It, it's, uh, it would depend on the country, because I think if you look at somewhere like, say, Canada, especially around about this time when a lot of navies are evaluating or in the process of replacing their existing fleets so if you're talking about somewhere like canada canada could probably they need to replace a bunch of their frigates dash destroyers they could quite probably happily just go yeah we'll we'll just do a wholesale replacement with somali burks that is it'd be a technological advance the flight threes are pretty new um and there's a there's a fair amount of commonality between uh, the systems that they're already using. Whereas if you're looking at a UK scenario, in actual fact, weirdly enough, we'd probably have better luck integrating some of the French ships these days because we use Thales radar, or Thales or however the heck you pronounce it these days, um, MD, MBDA, or again, whatever they're pronounced, we use the silver missile systems, etc., um, Storm Shadow and Scalp are pretty much the same thing with, with different languages stamped on them. So in terms of at least the weapons and sensor fits, we'd probably actually do better with adopting some of, say, the Horizon frigates, as, which have a similar visual profile to, or Horizon Destroyers, which have a similar visual profile to the Type 45s anyway. Um, and well, with the Germans, they're a bit yeah, of a weird hybrid of European and American systems. So I don't know quite who'd want those. I mean, apart from the fact that at least one of them kept having this annoying habit of rolling over the first few times they tried sailing it. What about just maintaining a free US fleet? 
Um, you know, we had the free French and the, mm-hmm. and the Polish. Um, they seem to, um, you know, sustain their operations reasonably well, particularly the Polish. Mm. Don't just say it's because their ships were almost tribals. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but I do think a nice way when we're talking about the Polish, uh, the free Polish. Yes, there's a couple of ships which are certainly from the original Polish Navy, but most of their ships uh, very quickly are either their engines are pretty much rebuilt by the Royal Navy to British engine standards. They are already possibly built in Britain to British naval standards. Or they actually get Royal Navy ships, which mm. the Royal Navy was mm. building, and the Royal Navy assigns them. And to be fair, it's the Polish fighting the Nazis in World War II. They would have kept their ships running on spite and hatred. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, I, I think if see the, the it's a bit of a strange one because if you've got a free U.S., I guess we could maybe they'd probably call themselves the Eagle Force or something. Um, but if we've got this theoretical free U.S. fleet. The, the the split is 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 odd because in terms of their overall strategic interests, which they probably want to carry forward, the best place for them to go is probably Australia because well, it's even closer to China, um, and the Pacific is very much more the U.S.'s sort of play area, a little bit more than the Atlantic is. But at the same time, Australia doesn't have anywhere near the infrastructure or shipyard or refueling capabilities for the nuclear powered vessels that somewhere like the UK does. And obviously, they with the there, there is a certain amount of strategic interest around Russia still um, in naval wise. So, yeah, it, it would be interesting because in terms of where they probably want to be basing themselves, they probably want to be in Australia. But in terms of where the maintenance and the refueling is probably going to be easiest they probably want to be in the UK. Um, and there's probably also, but we'll probably find there's a bunch of uh, pre-prepared stored parts and bits and pieces scattered around various NATO countries in bunkers and warehouses and such like, which they'll probably find useful. What it's, was it's the... Uh... It's that sort of issue, but it's also, it's going to sound strange. If they manage to retain control of um, Hawaii, then they actually then have quite a lot of facilities as well themselves Hmm. yeah that's true a lot of stocks stocks there as well i mean i suppose this is the thing isn't it so with most major navies you're almost these days you're almost down to a very very few key points of infrastructure support for example i guess like with the u.s navy they could probably afford to lose 90 percent of the u.s coast and cities from their control because with the best will in the world if they lose if new york forms its own new york free radical collective aside from maybe a couple of slipways they're just going to sort of shrug and go okay well that doesn't actually affect our ability to operate if you lose norfolk um if virginia decides the south is going to rise again mark two um <laughs> that's something of a bigger problem considering just how much they've got parts of the reserve fleet they've got refueling facilities both nuclear and conventional arsenals slipways maintenance ways dockyards they're all there um and even though norfolk as a city is much much smaller than somewhere like boston or new york 
I think they, they, yeah, in U.S. Navy terms, they'd much rather see the whole of the Northeast U.S. coast go go their own way than they see Virginia, uh, Virginia under another flag. <laughs> anyway, I think oh. you know, we're getting to a point where we shouldn't be tempting uh, the fates of 2020 any further than we already have. <laughs> We have probably been pushing it. And uh, let's face it, we're also now um, 10 minutes over our new self-restraint time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are going to try to keep it roughly to an hour for the listeners. This is the new thing. That and uh, that uh, is keeping it to an hour and that and explaining ourselves more so we don't use all the anacronyms without um, actually explaining what they mean. But we've we've been doing that anyway. We're doing that. We're fairly good. I think so. I think so. Right. So, so, so shall we say thank you and thank you to everyone for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you for putting up with us. Yes. 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 It's always fun being bilge pumps. Right. <laughs> we, by name and by nature. Yes, definitely. So thank you very much to everyone who's listening. Yeah, and don't forget if you really, really want to tempt twenty twenty, vote Cthulhu twenty twenty. <laughs> why, why vote for a lesser evil? <laughs> Oh, that's going to get us killed. <laughs> the wonders of editing. Eject, eject, eject. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. And, oh, okay. thank you. Bye. So. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>